A dictionary definition of the word context is the interrelated conditions in which something exists or occurs. AQMB's Artist Statement podcast is a conversation series exploring the fresh perspectives in art generated by these changing contexts, politically, culturally, socially, other. It features artists and thinkers orbiting our world, where we chat in response to developments in technology, communication and beyond. I'm Associate Editor Jared Davis, and in this episode I speak with R.I.P. Germain, an artist whose multidisciplinary practice spans themes of grief, black music culture in the UK, and complex entanglements of masculinity. Based in Luton, R.I.P. has exhibited at spaces including London's VO Curations, Peak, South London Gallery, and more. He was selected as one of the recipients for ICA London's Image Behaviour Commissions, for which he is developing a film exploring African spiritualism in the Caribbean through first-hand conversations with its practitioners. His latest solo exhibition, Shimmer, is on now at Leicester's Two Queens Gallery. I first came to R.I.P. Germain's practice through his digital contribution to the ninth How to Sleep Faster journal, published by Arcadia Missa in 2018, and his deeply poignant examination of grief in Dead Yard, a solo show at London's Cubic Gallery last year, was a memorable exhibition highlight for me as we emerged from lockdown. After his recent show at VO Curations demonstrated a similar emotional intensity, I wanted to talk with the artist on his keen ability in examining the cultural life of objects. We spoke on the topics of music, cultural antagonisms, and notions of men's mental health that permeate his practice. I've got a particular work of yours in mind um, that I just recently saw at VO Curations. Um, it's the opening work in the exhibition, Allah Burnt His Brain. Um, I, thought I, I thought I'd ask if you could just talk us through this piece a little bit for the uninitiated, because I think it's a really um, sort of dense and layered work. And, and for me, uh, it was like quite a, a strong introduction to your practice, I think, for those that might not have been exposed to your work before. Um, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a real pleasure um, to be a part of this series. And yeah, thank you again um, for the kind words about the work. Um, the origins of the work come from the title itself. And um, I know the, the title is a bit provocative, <laughs> but it's not meant to be that way in the slightest, it, it comes from a documentary that I watched uh, a few years ago, which was about a, a Muslim community in Seattle that was in the grips of um, a heroin addiction epidemic amongst the, the younger uh, people in that community. And um, a lot of the elders were kind of ashamed of the the situation that was going on with their children, their nieces, their nephews, etc. And were kind of sweeping it under the rug and trying to like ignore it. And in one of the 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 scenes in the documentary, they were speaking to this imam and this uh elder uh figure in the community and this elder figure was talking to the imam about um, I believe it was his nephew that had passed away from heroin addiction and he spoke of the mental health issues that his nephew was going through as a, as a result of this addiction and the way he described it was that he said Allah burned his brain and for me that was such a beautiful but sharp and harsh but very poetic way of describing 
mental health issues and it in that sort of very sharpness you could you could feel the love that came from describing it that way and for me um this work is particularly layered in very specific ways so it has like dual functions as a work so the first function just on a very emotional level is that it's uh, a work that it revolves around my own personal issues with uh, PTSD that's intertwined with violence so like um, the types of near-death situations that I've been through from my teenage years up until my, um, now if you want to say that and um, this work in that sense is a very selfish work I think it's important for artists you know um, to create their own spaces in which they can inhabit um in the gallery space uh on a level that you know works for them um you know as artists just on a very basic level in terms of the relationship that we have in, with an audience when presenting our work we're like giving 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 right and the audience is receiving all the time basically through you know getting to like consume this work that we're providing for them but for me in doing that, I also wanted to create a space for myself that could work for me. Um, and so this work then was a space for me to, you know, confront these issues of PTSD. It, it forms as a space for me to heal. And, you know, that's why you have the, the ghillie suit um, that's uh, manifested throughout, like, you know, uh, brown bandana flags which is a motif that appears in a lot of my works um, and holds different functions but within this work it's a manifestation of all of those experiences that I've gone through uh, with violence and you know um, so for me it's a space you know for me to sort of inhabit and you know it, it's a space for me to retreat to I can just go there you know, whilst the show is on, regardless of who's in the space at that time as well. Um, that isn't really a concern of mine. That's for me. But in the second sense, this work is also about, you know, the relationship an audience has with a work within, you know, the fabled four white walls of a gallery space, right? Um, because throughout this whole show there were various things which were soft, open invitations. So there was an invitation for the audience to cross over the earth mound and actually inhabit the space as well in the same way that I wanted to. That was there for you. There was a airbag, well, air sleeping bag for people to just sit on. You could sit on it. You could walk around it. You could do whatever with it. But, you know, with the placement of the earth mound was a sort of a physical way of, you know, manifesting that barrier that we have been raised, you know, with when um, encountering art, like art is always seen as this, you know, these precious objects, we're supposed to, you know, passively observe art, you know, you can't touch, 
you can't feel, you can't get too close, you know, you go to a museum and it has like those wires, that box, you know, the old Renaissance paintings and such like that, or like, you know, sculptures, you know, that are considered too valuable to, you know, get too close to. And for me, I I really enjoy the idea of a work being perishable or it having a half-life or, you know, it existing one way in the beginning and then by the end of a show exist in a completely different way. To me, I feel like it's also important, you know, for an audience to experience different types of art and, you know, to be more expansive in how they can interact with an art, you know, artwork that it exists within those traditional gallery spaces. Um, so for me, this work, it functioned on a whole load of different layerings. And just for the audience to quickly understand why there is an earth mound and why I've used that as a barrier, it's a case of, so basically in England, if you're listening from abroad, uh, what you'll have in parks, especially in towns, um, at the edge of these parks, you'll have these earth mound barriers that the council or whatever govern governance is uh, running the city or town. And they will place them um, at the edge of these parks or like public spaces um, so that um, Irish travellers can't inhabit those spaces with whatever like type of abode that they have so that could be like a mobile caravan and stuff like that so they they um put these earth mound barriers so people can't they can't set up a settlement there and for me that's a very harsh way of dictating how a public space can be inhabited by certain people and how people can be you know sort of kept at arm's length and basically systematically be told you can't inhabit this space the way you want to you live by our terms even though it's a public space no 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 you follow our rules and you do it our way and fuck basically however you want to inhabit this space um so for me having this earth mound is also sort of a, uh, a way to sort of get that point across and sort of use that metaphor as a way of describing, you know, the the traditional audience relationship with a gallery space. And, you know, there's certain parts of the installation that are hidden. So if you just observe it from a traditional, in a traditional manner, without actually crossing over the earth mound, there'll be parts of it that you will never see. And, you know, that's also my way of saying, you know, even though we live in this Western society, which is di dictated on following systems, you know, sometimes you won't get the best out of life unless you break the rules sometimes. Something, something that I think you do so powerfully in your work is kind of um, surfacing like the, the hidden meanings behind some kind of bit behind objects and i think you spoke a bit about that really nicely with the the 
the dirt mounds um, of the parks, which is something that I have since noticed in parks. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't actually know their purpose until until seeing your exhibition, and and now I see it so strikingly. Just the sort of um, the kind of quiet aggression of that that um, uh, sort of uh, pl placing those in the parks and. Um, yeah, the kind of intervention into pu into public space like that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to sort of ask you on on this a little bit if you can talk a little bit about um, how these sorts of cultural misunderstandings and clashing value systems, um, specifically, you know, in the UK, it's a sort of fraught relationships between different communities in the UK, um, is a source for your work and 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 specific specifically how that kind of plays itself through. Uh, uh, objects and cultural artifacts um yeah i was wondering if you could talk about the how these kind of um these sort of different value systems in the uk play out through objects in your work yeah for sure um yeah it's it's basically about you know talking about social issues that aren't really often talking about in the art space or better much the art world so you know i've done a lot of works that uh, revolve around uk drill and sort of like the the gang life issue within london and a lot of the aesthetics and sort of you know cultural references and you know objects that are like common within those worlds I try to, you know, put place within my work as a way of, you know, representing them in specific ways, whilst also, you know, um, running my own version of commentary on them. So you have with um, where I've in uh, the show at VO, I did the work which involved uh, lean and, you know, the the sort of the drug epidemic um that's bubbling within you know young black teenagers involved with you know codeine and you know opioids and stuff like that and you know how that has managed to like cross over from south, uh, the american south over to london and become popular and seen as a party drug even though with without the teenagers understanding that codeine and like lean is basically just drinking liquid heroin. Um, whereas also with, you know, the work that involved the Joss paper and hell money. Um, for me, it's the objects and me using them, they're, they're used as like vessels in order to, you know, discuss different ideas that, you know, through text may be a bit more harsher to to bridge between you know myself and the audience in you know building understanding or even like empathy or whatever type of agenda i have for the work um whereas a lot of these items have strong visual power so like you know where you have the the cake soap and it just looks like this in real life is this very tiny and very cute looking little blue bar of soap that has like bomber etched into it and it's very striking and very it's just a very peculiar object um so then 
my way of sort of referencing that was like, you know, make an exaggerated version of it is very big. Um, and it has a well, well vibes etched into it. And that's like a, a reference to vibes cartel cause his nickname is well boss. But then, you know, when thinking about well vibes and I'm discussing skin bleaching through this, um, this object, you know, I'm then making the linkage between, you know, the global disdain towards darker skin and particularly black skin, you know? So me using these very specific objects, they're very deliberate in their usage and it's not just about, you know, the symbolic meanings that I'm placing into the works. It's also about the visual characteristics that they have because, you know, I can make so many different, you know, layered intellectual uh, meanings that I'm placing into an object, but if it doesn't have any visual power to it, then just even on a basic level, it's not going to register with the audience, you know. A lot about art is, you know, how it captures you visually, right? So it's also about the balancing act of that and, you know, making sure that the objects that I'm using make sense conceptually to the the points I'm trying to get across, as well as it also being interesting to the audience to, you know, look at and, you know, and sometimes pick up, you know. Um, just taking it back to that work you just mentioned briefly, mm-hmm. um, Jarrell, um, on yes. the, the uh, lean or codeine addiction. Um, mm-hmm. I had in, in my mind when I... In, in looking at that work and also the previous work, Allah Burnt His Brain, you sort of, you mentioning this um, personal connection you have mm-hmm. through the, the, the PTSD, um, working through that, through the work. Um, I wanted to ask you on, on these sort of two works in particular as well, uh, would you say that there's a particular reflectiveness in your work or sort of critical thinking around um, men's mental health and, and issues of masculinity um, it's something that's that's quite striking to me in your work, particularly in these ones. And uh, yeah, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Of course, of course, uh, especially uh, masculinity through the the angle of black masculinity is a very present theme throughout all of my work. Um, the way I'm trying to examine it comes out in different ways but it's an ever-present theme throughout all of my work and mental health issues is and like specifically um interrogating that is something that seems to be more creeping into my practice as time goes along just because when investigating um black masculinity it it seems to be coming in part and parcel that they're just attached to each other you know because um it it, for me when you know investigating the idea of like masculinity and what that means as a black man and you know how um you internalize what it is to be a man in this world nowadays and whether or not that actually matches up with how society um pushes onto you what it is to be a man or even a black man they can match up for some people but oftentimes it doesn't so you know for me 
it is about self-reflection most of the time um and it can come in very in various forms and to various degrees so you know a reason for why i'm so interested in you know the kids that are involved in the gang life and you know uh, making uk drill music and all these types of things is because i know loads of them i have i have tons of them that are family members um if i had been their age right now it could have easily been one of them you know um i was very much entrenched in the grime scene back in the early 2000s so and i know how easy it is and how close in proximity you that life is for any type of black kid it doesn't matter about your like social economic status or whatever that's part and parcel why my sh- why the show at vo was named that you know the reason why i have the title four bedrooms with an ensuite a garage and garden in a nice neighborhood is because that perfectly describes the house i grew up in and growing up in that house which is very um representational of you know the western ideal of life you know that's the end game you know you're meant to you know go to primary school go to high school or middle school then high school then you're meant to go to college then you're meant to go to uni and then through uni you're meant to get the qualifications to get a nice job that pays well and in the midst of this you know you're meant to meet your partner and then you know with a with this partner you're meant to start a night and have a family with them and you know you end up by hopefully by your mid to late 30s living in a nice house right with this family i had that it didn't save me from all the violence i went through or all the fucked up shit that was around me it didn't it didn't do nothing it's a mirage so for me when you know discussing these topics and you know covering these types of social issues a lot of it is self reflective because i see a lot of myself in these kids and you know how a lot of it can be out of their hands you know um and how a lot of it is within their hands but sometimes they don't see it and you know it's just hard watching kids destroy their lives like live because you can see it on social media you can watch it it's fucked up being able to like go on youtube or twitter or on instagram and watch all these kids do this stuff to themselves and then you just have to watch it you can't really do anything about it and for me i feel like whilst i have this toolkit in being able to make these artworks i feel my version of doing my part is these artworks you know there's only so much each of us can do and for me making commentary about these issues and making sure that there's space where people can actually learn about what's going on in london with these types of um 
social issues and these teenagers and stuff. I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep showing up that mirror and being like, you know, this stuff is going on right around you. You need to pay attention. Um, and that was like one of the reasons with my debut show at Peak, um, RIP to Peak and Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre. Um, the first show I did was karaoke um, series where I had like four videos um, and they were UK drill songs that I was challenging the audience to do karaoke to with one of the works um, being a collage of a database that I had amounted where um, I spent like a year and a half um, just basically downloading everything that all of the these teenagers in London were voluntarily putting up onto their social media accounts. So like their Snapchats, their YouTubes, their Twitters, everything. And then, you know, with karaoke videos, they usually have background collages, right? For you whilst you're singing along. So I basically then presented the real life version of their music videos and what they were rapping about. And then was challenging the audience to then sing along to this music that they're so used to enjoying and singing along in the comfort of their own homes. So, and a driving force for me for doing that, so I did that in September 2018. The summer of 2018 was really fucked up in London. And, you know, a rough number of the amount of teenagers that were in this five-minute collage that I did, there must have been about, I don't know, between 130 to 150 teenagers. I tell you right now, I started making that video in June 2018 and finished it at the end of August 2018. And by the time in those, like, two to three months, 80% of those teenagers were either in prison or dead. So it was showing, I was trying to highlight to people like, look, this is a state of emergency, like some shit is really going on in this city and we need to pay attention. So yeah, that's, it is very self-reflective, this part of my practice. Um, yeah. Another a very key theme in your work and I guess something that was touched on a little bit there as well is music and music culture yes. specifically um, music culture in the UK um, mm -hmm. is, is very central to your work so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how music informs your thinking and your work and and obviously it goes back to your history as well as you mentioned your involvement in the grime scene yes um, music it it's like the central part of my like practice. It's kind of, you know, that was my art growing up in a sense. It, it, it wasn't a, like I went to museums and stuff like that, but that was only when I went on school trips, you know. Um, there's no galleries or anything like that in Luton. It's only recently we've only ever got one and that was in the last three to four years. And it's more project space. So before that, there's nothing in Luton. So music was, you know, my first introduction to like expansive thinking in a creative sense, you know, outside of then of like reading books and stuff like that. So... I've always had family members that were very much 
in music scenes. So my cousin, Michael, he was very much in the jungle scene. So whenever I'd go to um, Stoke Newington, where he lived in the mid nineties, he would have his decks out and he would be playing all the like jungle music and stuff like that and showing me how to mix and all these different types of things. And then, you know, as I get older and grime becomes a thing, that's like my teenage formative years. So this is like my music. And, you know, this is what speaks to me. Like, I can remember when Dizzy's Boy in the Corner came out. Like, I remember that specific day. And my cousin handing over the CD to me and being like, put it in. And then basically just hearing all of our lives being spoken back to us. Um, there's so many songs in that album where the situation Dizzy talks talks about, I've actually been through, or I know someone that has been through them. Um, so music became a very easy way of, you know, understanding how a creative practice can be formulated. And, you know, once I've gotten very much into music scenes like hip-hop and all these types of things and got real nerdy and sort of like you know investigated how these albums were created and you know you look to Raekwon's Only Built for Cuban Links and you find out like that's the first album where rappers then took on um, aliases and then you know, use those aliases and we're only referring to each other on that album in aliases. So, you know, Method Man becomes Noodles, um, Raekwon's The Chef, you know, You God's Golden Arms, and they only refer to themselves in that manner on that album. And it has like a theme throughout the whole album where you can track through the songs where they go from rags to riches and then by and then they make it big. And then by the end of it, they reflect on the fucked up stuff that they've done and how they want to change their lives and all these different types of things. So music is just it's one of the main ways I just understand the creative practice as a form of system making. And then that comes back to the grime sense of things, you know, with the whole idea of grime bootlegging. And I have a particular fascination with grime bootlegging because we've never seen anything like it since and we never will. And it's just complete rago fuck, like the lawmaking that comes with making music. And it's just like creative juices on steroids and just doing whatever the fuck you want. It's like the closest we've ever really got back to, you know, the era, the peak era of jungle, which is like end of 93 to like mid 95 to me. And like the true essence of punk music, because you got to think these teenagers and these young adults back in the early 2000s, they barely had any money. And they were using these crappy, like, music equipment. And they managed to create this whole genre of music out of it. And these really forward-thinking stuff. You think of, like, Jammer's Feedback, instrumental, which is, like... I think, yeah, it is my favourite grime instrumental. It's basically taking the feedback from a sub and making a beat out of it. Mm. Like... That shit, like, melts my brain when I think about it. It's something that's, like, so simple. And it's just so 
it's just genius because you even listen to the beat and it's fucked. But you know what? It's the perfect grime instrumental. You cannot fail on it. It's known as there's like sort of a slang back in the day um, for beats where it's actually hard for an MC to fuck up. Like the MC has to go out of their way to fuck up not sounding great on it. And they used to call them dump beats. That's like the quintessential dump beat. You cannot (laughs) fail on it. Um, And with grime bootlegging, it's like you can end up with... Basically, it's what hip-hop should have become if the law didn't get in the way. Because, you know, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising basically kind of killed hip-hop in a way because that was they got, like, sued for how many samples were being put in songs. And basically, from that, there was, like, laws made and the whole, like, sampling thing just kind of blew up in the genre's face. And that's why you kind of then don't have songs anymore that have like three or four samples which used to be in the case with hip-hop so but with grime you can have like there's um bootlegs which are known as like you know thug ho which is like um i forget which uh it's thuggish uh it's skeptors thuggish ruggish um mixed with dizzy's ho instrumental and sometimes you'll have like um four or five different beats all just like mixed in together and it's just a real sort of peakness of you know just really doing whatever the fuck you want and just saying fuck you I'm just gonna do what I want to hear and um to me that's kind of then how I brace uh, like base my art practice on to me it's like I only have this one career and I only have this one life So the foundation I'm going to base my practice on is I'm going to do what the fuck I want. And, you know, and I don't mean that in an arrogant or entitled way. It just means I'm just going to really, 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 really investigate what it is I want to express and really just try my hardest to then manifest that in works that really speak to me and speak to the people I want to talk to. There's this really great quote um, from you in a recent um, interview with Kate Wong of of VO Curations where you say, I'll just quote it for our listeners, it's really good. Um, The the objects, like the objects that you're working with, are usually just vessels for a different discussion. I'm hardly ever using an object as it exists. It's like I'm a grime bootlegger taking something Mm -hmm. that exists and remixing it, manipulating it in a way um, that I want it to look and feel. It's like a mutation in a conceptual sense through meaning making. And I really love this quote. It sort of touches on um, sort of how uh, grime bootlegging is a bit of a, a sort of um, a, a method um, or a sort of a point of departure as a method for you in your practice. That, um, but for me, also, this kind of interest you have in um, subcultures like this, and or you kind of spoke back of punk as well, even there as well, and that sort of DIY ethos of it. Um, and sort of meaning making and and semiotics and 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 sort of what what sort of cultural artifacts signify it sort of puts your work for me a little bit in in a sort of lineage that's um sort of quite big in the uk it has a strong history in the uk of cultural studies um of course the sort of academic field of cultural studies of like Stuart hall and paul gilroy 
Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to just kind of ask you, it could even be a yes-no kind of question, but um, <laughs> whether that's a lineage that you identify with, some of those thinkers, and that sort of looking at um, sort of subculture and, and meaning and, and the semiotics of different styles through sort of UK subcultures as a way of kind of unpacking the sort of social histories well, for me, it's well. Thank you for <laughs> for, uh, for um, placing me within that li- lineage. Um, for me, it's not as simple as a yes or no answer. Just because, mm. for me, I'm not so consciously picking out subcultures that I'm investigating. To me, it's very much more an instinctive response to what's going on in my life so say with the uk drill stuff for me that was very much like you know feeling like oh this is the generation just below me and i'm seeing the repeat of the grime years and like but just even worse like all the bad stuff that happened within the grime era just like being turned up like 10 notches and i just can't stand by and watch this happen and you know where i'm basing my ideological ideologically basing my practice around that you know the ethos of grime bootlegging is just natural to me um so for me subcultures it isn't necessarily something for me where you know i'm playing archaeologist and i'm not saying that that's what you're placing onto me but in answering your question it's more because this is where i come from this is this is what i know you know, and I can't betray myself in that way in not talking about stuff that is important to me in that respect. And just circling back on that quote you gave, um, I guess a more sort of like nerdy way of like um, describing it or using as an analogy is like with Spider-Man, right? So, you know where you have the symbiotes? Um, And basically, you know, you can consider the objects that I'm using as Peter Parker, right? Or Mm. um, or the the host. And me as an artist being the symbiote, you know, and sort of like latching myself onto this uh, object or host. And, you know the way carnage and venom manifested is because the symbiote, you know, responds to the personality of the host and it just comes out as a mixture between the two, right? So Mm -hmm. carnage is only carnage because the host that that symbiote latched onto was a crazy psychopath. That's, that's, (laughs) yeah. So (laughs) if you take that, that's how... I treat these objects, you know, mm. not in the sense of trying to <laughs> become a psychopath or anything like that, but in the sense of it's, 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 it's another relationship, right? Mm. It's another relationship I'm building with this object, you know. I'm invading onto it and I'm sort of re-etching what it actually means. It looks the same, or it may not. It may be, like, morphed in a different way, but it looks enough where you can recognise what it originally was but it's not so Mm. um and that and that's for various agendas that i'm doing within the artwork 
but in terms of yeah like subcultures um yeah it to me it's just what i am it really is just what i am and there i i can't think of a topic that i've covered within my art practice that i haven't lived through to mm-hmm. some degree you know um I was wondering, could you could you talk a little bit about the kind of persistent role that grief um, plays in your work? Mm. I guess you've kind of it's sort of in there a little bit in some of the the answers that you've um, given me now. But um, uh, in particular, I guess it, it's such a strong and central theme in Dead Yard, as as is is in other other works of yours. So yeah, can you talk to me a little bit about grief uh, and and its sort of um, sort of focus in your in your practice? Well, with grief, um, yeah, with grief, with grief, um, it's one of the areas of my practice that I try to be as human as possible with, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, the way society looks at artists traditionally is that we're kind of hoisted onto these pedestals as, you know, sort of the people with the answers, you know, usually artists are thrust in this position where through their works, they're making commentary or like dictating a point or, you know, they're the works are meant to be like the finishing point of these ideas that they have. Right. And with grief where that's manifested in my works, um, I don't have answers for it. And I'm very upfront with that. And I think it's important for me to say that as an artist that's making work about grief, because, you know, it's a very raw thing, not just for me, but for the audience to encounter. And, you know, you don't want to, you know, put too much pressure onto myself and, you know, dictating stuff to an audience and saying, you know, this is how you should, like, respond to grief as a person and all these different types of things when, you know, I'm working through that myself. And those works that I've made about grief have been just, you know, mostly sculptural manifestations of that working through, you know? trying to understand how I feel about grief and, you know, the person I'm grieving or people I'm grieving and, you know, trying to undo the sort of coached behaviours that, you know, we have within this society in relation to grief, you know. There's a lot of things involved with that that are considered taboo. So, you know, like one of the works I was discussing at my show Dead Yard at Cubit was about how you meant to deal with grieving someone that you had a terrible relationship with or they may have done stuff to you that, you know, makes you hate them. But, you know, since they've passed what relationship then do you have to them? Because, you know, you have those cliche sayings of like, you know, once someone's passed, you don't speak ill of the dead, you know, you let bygones be bygones, you know, you're meant to let 
stuff lie and get over it now that they're not there but it's a case of like well fuck that like what if they've done some shit to you that you just really can't get past you know um and i think that's okay for you to not want to grieve someone that has done stuff to you or hold them in like to some form of respect you know because you didn't have that while they were alive so why have that when they're dead you know so for me when i'm covering grief the the works are more about you know me physically trying to work through that emotion and the process of grieving and sometimes it's actually been brought to my attention that the work is about grief and I'm not actively thinking about it, which is then to me has meant that I felt through self-reflection is like, oh, okay, well, I actually see that in when they've told me this. Okay, so what is that about? I'm not professing to be at an end point with my practices. I would hate to be at the end point with any parts of my practice at this moment in time um so i don't really have a strong answer with that and i'm happy about not having a strong answer with that because you know that means for me that there's still more time for me to grow as a human and as an artist with this aspect of my practice when we had ashley holmes on the podcast we spoke a little bit about the open deck and dead yard collaborative radio programs um so i I was wondering if if uh because you're both artists that we've individually covered a bit on aqmb and i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um your creative kinship with ashley and the work that you two have done together um i guess you're um kindred spirits creatively but also old friends so can you tell us a little bit about your um work that you've you've both produced together well, yeah, Ashley's my chargey. I've known him since, like, we was... God knows. We went to the same high school. <laughs> um, he's the year below me. Or maybe he's two years below. I can't remember. But, um, yeah, for me, basically, the way we've managed to end up working together quite a few times is because we have that trust in each other, you know, And that comes from a creative level as well as a personal level. Like, I won't work with someone unless I know them, like, for quite a long time. Um, And that, and just because I'm a friend of yours then doesn't mean that I think we'd even work, working together, if that makes sense. It's, it's just because our, I guess our artistic goals align in a way, which means that we can collaborate because, you know, we can make a work and have a, a collaborative goal, but we can also have our own separate goals and they don't clash with each other. Um, so, you know, where we did the open deck, dead yard, like radio um, service and shows you know, um, for him, it was a way of, you know, continuing his open deck series and exploring open deck as a series in a different type of way. So, you know, where the, he, it was a show that was thematically based 
um, in a conceptual way, you know, usually open decks is like, you know, where people can bring whatever they want and they come as they are and, you know, you just go from there, that foundation. Whereas with our collaborative open deck show, it was based specifically on grief and, you know, people then had to work from that foundation, which is very sort of curated. And then we'd go from there. And that was a good way for him to look at what a different way open deck could be or, uh, you know, how it could become uh, expansive in a different way. Whereas for me, it meant that I could, you know, explore grief through a different medium. So like radio shows and, you know, sort of actually continue my ideological um, pursuit of exploring the relationship between artists and audience and different ways to involve the audience in the artwork that I'm making in very overt and sort of like uh, generous ways and you know um, making my uh, practice not uh, voyeuristic from the audience's um, side of the fence or you know passive you know and more more of a way for me to connect with my audience and actually have a conversation with them because usually in my practice I'm asking questions I'm not telling the audience stuff I'm I'm telling them stuff in terms of like you know where I'm describing cultures or peoples or situations or stories but in terms of like perspectives and opinions I very rarely give a direct end game final point that I'm making in that sense I'm more asking questions and you know leaving the floor open to have a conversation with the audience so with Ashley it like I said it's just a case of when we're working together is because we have a shared goal but it leaves room for us both to carry on and continue our own individual artistic practices and whatever we're collaborating on is like a new way of doing our individual practices if that makes sense um it must be quite fresh on your mind um at the time of us recording this you've just recently opened up uh, your latest solo exhibition at two queens in leicester um i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the show uh, introduce us i haven't had a chance to go up and see it quite yet so i'm very curious to hear yeah so the name of the show is called shimmer and it's actually kind of a i call it like a continuation from the show at vo just because it's kind of it, well it is investigating the the main themes that were present in the vo show you know in terms of system making but then looking at it from a different way so with shimmer Basically, I'm investigating, you know, how spaces exist within London and I guess just the country itself and the world, how you can have spaces exist and on a very surface level, they're presenting to you that they are something. But when you actually just even scratch beneath that surface, you find out there's something else. 
So an example would be the network of weed calves that are in London. And, you know, a lot of the time, I used to, in years gone by, pass all these office blocks that will seemingly be empty, right? You, You see them and they all have, like, those two let signs on the front. And I used to walk past all of these places in all these areas across London and I'd be like it's so fucked up like there's these empty office spaces that could easily be filled with you know homeless people or people that don't have anywhere to live or in in bad times and you know you could just give those spaces to them even if it's temporarily but you know they don't have to be outside when there's these empty buildings that could just house them or whatever then you find out (laughs) they're not empty (laughs) you find out (laughs) that more often than not they're like these weed calves right and there's a whole world that you just don't know about unless you do know about it right so this show is about you know what I call them well I, were, I was talking to one of the people that I'm very much in conversation with quite a lot of the time, um, uh, Helen Starr, who is, like, this amazing person. Um, I consider her a mentor of such. And she coined what I was describing with that as, you know, baggy spaces. So... You know, a baggy space is basically, you know, where you can, uh, these spaces exist where they live outside of the law, but, you know, they they clearly uh, service the community, a community, because there's a demand for them, right? Um, but it doesn't fit in with what is, you know, legal, you know, so I'm looking at these types of spaces with this show because, you know, a lot of people, they go to these weed calves or spaces like this because, you know, sometimes they may have mental health issues and they don't want to go through the NHS just because, of you know, social or racial biases may confront them in very harsh ways. So, you know, this may be an easy way for them to like self-medicate, you know, Um there's all different types of ways, like, um, you know, when I've been in these spaces, you know, I've given decor advice to the people that run these places because they know I'm an artist. So, you know, and they've wanted to, like, build out workstations for, like, when the bankers come through and they so they can do their work. And, and that's also the point I want to get across. Just because these spaces are quote-unquote illegal doesn't mean that it isn't inhabited by all types of people. I've taught, I've spoken to bankers, lawyers, doctors, university students, compl- uh, drug dealers, um, all across the spectrum, which shows you that society in general needs these spaces. It would be different if a specific type of demographic only went to these spaces But if you go to these spaces, you see all age types and all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses go there. So that means that there's a demand for them just on a very general social level. 
So, in a general sense, because I don't want to give away too much, because you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. See it if they can. Um, I'm basically do covering those types of spaces, and you know, basically looking at how illegal forms of living can, in some ways, ethically help society. You know, and living outside of that box can some in some ways actually benefit you which as i've described with the vo show is a continuation specific like especially on that alabant his brain work um and those topics but there's a there's a lot of things with that show that are new for me that i'm exploring but i'm gonna leave that as like me being mysterious and you have to <laughs> you have to see the show <laughs> to like, <laughs> yeah exactly Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, just just to finish, just one last question. I really want to ask you about your upcoming film commission. Um, you're working on a film as part of the ICA's Image Behaviour Commissions. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and specifically um, how how is it that you're approaching the film medium? Because as we've spoken a lot about in this podcast, you work a lot with objects. Um, so I'm really interested to hear sort of what you're working on with film. Well, um, in terms of my practice, um, yeah, I would say that obviously I've been working with objects mainly, but the way I consider myself as an artist, I respond to the idea with the most effective way or the, what I seem, what I deem to be the most effective medium to like present that work so you know where I've done like a karaoke work I've done photography work I've done performance before and such and such it's just over the past year and a half it's like interactive installations and sculptural works is just what's spoken to me mostly at the moment but with Mew which is the the title of the film um it's been interesting working with film because you know it comes with its own rules. It comes with its own history. It comes with its own expectations, you know. And, you know, you speak to, like, a DOP and and they're like, you know, well, this is how it goes and this is what's, like, kind of expected of you as, like, a director and, you know, someone that's managing a film project and you're meant to do all of these types of things. So it's been a daunting process. Um, the film itself it it comes in a double layering so you know on one level it's about me rerouting with my caribbean heritage and you know trying to like you know uh build stronger ties to you know that part of myself and my life and then on the other side of the coin it's also about investigating um you know, African spiritualism in the Caribbean and sort of looking at the the black religions um, in the Caribbean, uh, mainly like the Orisha faith, but OBR as well as, you know, all those types of things and divinations, you know, and, you know, giving space for people that come from those communities to, you know, explain their cultures and talk about their lives and you know talk about their faith and their religion 
in their words, you know, a lot of um, stigma is attached to those uh, people, cultures and faith. A lot of it, you know, is based in colonial racism and, you know, as a way of, you know, stripping uh, black history from black people um, from those regions in a way to, you know, maintain control over them and all these different types of things. So, you know, now you'll get, like, people, when you talk about judge or, like, voodoo and uh, santeria, bluharia, and all these different types of things, and the first reaction you'll get, especially, like, people in the Western European world, is like, oh, you're into, like, Satan worship and all this type of thing when it... No. <laughs> no. Um, and it's basically a film... The film is a bit about myth-busting in that sense. And just giving these people the chance to actually talk about themselves, you know. And, you know... It's been tra- a transformative experience making this film. Um you know, being able to go over there and, you know, just live there for a bit and, you know, just be a part of watching and being welcomed into a community that in part and parts is quite alien to me, right? Which is another thing and why I'm trying to reroute myself. And, you know, just being able to experience that as being... Yeah, just kind of life-changing. And, you know, one of my crew members changed their whole perspective on religion just through the journey of filming um, the footage that we got to for this film. Um, so that kind of gives a clue to the types of things that we saw and felt and experienced. Yeah, it was just an amazing experience, really. You've been listening to AQMB's Artist Statement podcast, available exclusively to our subscribers. Your subscription helps us not only in producing each episode, but in making our ongoing editorial content on aqmb.com free for all. Be sure to keep an eye out for our weekly writing, track premieres and interviews on the site, presenting fresh perspectives around art, music and online culture from artists in our orbit. Our theme music is Coughing Up Pearls by Felicita. See you next time.